Tonight is our last lesson in our Meek Inherit the Earth uh, series of, of lessons, and I'm sure that you'll be glad to be done with it. Matthew 5, 5, of course, is uh, the passage that we've been talking about, and you've probably never spent an entire quarter talking about one, one verse, especially one with only, what, like eight or nine words in it. Uh, but I hope that we've seen that when Jesus says things like this, and this is just one of the Beatitudes, that there's so much packed into it because, of course, he's quoting the Psalms and there's an entire storyline, an entire narrative, an entire hope, an entire expectation, an entire way of living packed into these very, this very small verse. We talked about the idea of being blessed, that this is the life, right? That the life, and we say, ah, that's the life. That that doesn't apply to necessarily, ultimately, lying in a hammock and enjoying peace and tranquility, although that sounds pretty nice, that the people that have the life are those who fit these descriptions, one of which is the meek. And not just because they're meek, but because, for, they will inherit the earth. So we talked about the idea of meekness. We talked about that at length. What does it mean to be meek? What did it mean in the Old Testament? What does it mean in the New Testament? We talked about the fact that it carries with it the idea of being afflicted. So you don't chase after meekness. You don't chase after being afflicted. You don't want to suffer. You don't ask for suffering. But you respond to suffering. You respond to affliction. You respond to enemies with Meekness, with gentleness, you endure the present in light of the future. You embrace future promises as if they are a present uh, reality. Then we even talked about the earth a little bit last week. We talked about how creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption in Romans chapter 8. We talked about the fact that the more ambitious we are about chasing our bucket list, the less meek we can afford to be. We talked about the fact that we need to practice being last because in the new world, the last will be first, right? Uh, And so we talked about all of those things last week that Jesus says in Matthew 19 and verse 28 that the creation after the, he calls it the renewal of all things, Peter says that the creation will be like a new heavens and a new earth. And that is our inheritance. But that's the word I want to focus on tonight is inherit, inheritance. Because we are a culture that might be unique. I don't know. That would be interesting to think about, historically speaking. We might be fairly unique in that we don't really put a lot of stock in inheritance. Most people, the average person probably doesn't put a whole lot of stock in inheritance. It isn't like we feel like our life will be made or broken by getting an inheritance or not getting an inheritance, right? I mean, there may be some families that they've got this long legacy of wealth that they're counting on it being passed down generation after generation after generation, but probably... For the most of us, when we think about inheritance, we think, well, maybe I got a rich uncle out there somewhere I don't know about, and maybe someday he dies, and then I inherit whatever he has, and that would be nice, you know. But we don't really think about inheritance as being something that is everything. But if you think about historically what it would have been like for a people, especially to be royal, right, 
to have royalty because then it would be not just about money and stuff, but it would be about land and it would be authority. It would be a name, right? In fact, my mom was telling me a story the other day that apparently um, her family used to be called like Mick Nicholson or something like that. And, and so there was a Mick and a, and a son on the end. When I knew, my family that I know of is just called Nichols. Apparently, they lost a battle at one time, and they, had, they lost their land and their, I guess they lost the Mick on the top of their name. I don't know, but they somehow had to drop part of their name because of this huge defeat that they suffered. They not only lost their, their land, they lost their title. They lost their name. So for us, we're so far removed from that, we really don't understand that. But humanity was created, Genesis 1, 2, 3, we were created to be royalty, to rule over the earth, to tend it and to take care of it. But of course, we, humanity, have squandered our inheritance, right? And we've lost our inheritance and we were exiled from our land, exiled from the garden. And when the people of Israel were given a new garden, so to speak, right, the promised land, and they were told that this promised land was going to be a land that was flowing with milk and honey, right? It was going to be this new garden, this new paradise, and they were given this land. There were some interesting laws that went along with the land, because as it was divvied up by tribe, as the different tribes were given the parts of the land, they were told, now listen, this land... You're given this as stewards, but it really belongs to God. And God gets to call the shots on what happens and what doesn't happen. You own a piece of land. If you sold it, you sold it, right? You can't ever have it back. You don't get to come back. Your kids or grandkids don't get to come back and say, hey, actually, that was my granddaddy's land, and now I, I want it back now. That does, it doesn't work that way, right? It's not your family land anymore if it got sold. But that wasn't the case in Israel. Look over, if you've got your Bible, in Leviticus Chapter 25. And so the law is being given about the land that they're going to take, take possession of. And it says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Okay, you kind of see the scenario play out in your head. So there's a man and he was given this stewardship of this land from his father and from his father's father and from his father's 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 father and supposed to be this piece of property over the generations was in the family. This is our land. And then something happens. He becomes poor and he has to sell off his land, right? And so he sells part of his property. And then a close relative can come along and can buy that property back in his relative's name, so that now he has his family land put back together, right? So he has a kinsman redeemer, right? And we have a whole book in the Bible that's about that, right? The book of Ruth, right? Ruth. And Ruth is really, it's funny, we call it the book of Ruth. It's really the story of Naomi, isn't it? It's Naomi's story, her mother-in-law. And Naomi and her husband and her two sons, they leave Israel because of a famine and 
they had to leave their, their family inherited land and they went away to Moab. The boys get married, but then the boys die and dad dies and it's just Naomi and her daughter-in-laws and then eventually it's just Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth and they come back to Israel and thankfully they find a kinsman redeemer who will not only have a child in the family's name so as to have a son who will be the new heir of that family, but also buy their property back so that they have their name and their title and their family. It's sort of like the entire family is resurrected and they get back what once was theirs, right? That's what the book of Ruth is all about. And, and it just so happens that that, that boy who is born to Boaz or to, to Boaz and Ruth ends up being the ancestor of well David first, but then of course Jesus, who becomes humanity's kinsman redeemer, right? To give back to us what has been lost and what has been squandered. Verse 26, if a man has no one to redeem it, so if this person that has lost his land or lost part of his land has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, so he came into some money, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So if he comes into some money and he's able to buy that property back, he, he has the right to do that, right? He has the right to buy back because this is supposed to stay in his land. See, when we think about redemption, I'm afraid when we think Jesus has redeemed us, we tend to think about a slave sort of at an auction. That's sort of the metaphor that always seems to come to our mind, right? We've been purchased by Jesus like a slave at an auction, you know, and we've been purchased and set free. And I think that's a good metaphor, but I think these are the metaphors really that are the most biblical, this sort of idea of redemption, the way Boaz was a redeemer, in that Naomi and her family were exiled and cut off, lost their land, lost their inheritance, until Boaz stepped up and redeemed the family and brought them back in. See, the entire Bible is an exile story, isn't it? It's about the exile first of humanity from the garden, and then eventually Israel becomes a micro version of that fall and that exile. And then eventually Israel themselves are exiled out of the promised land, right? They go to captivity in Babylon. And then they even come back into Jerusalem and into Israel. But in so many ways, they are exactly like Naomi and Ruth were when they moved back to Bethlehem. Do you remember when they got back to Bethlehem? And Naomi is like, my life is over. I'm, I'm desolate. I'm nobody. They were back, but they were still exiled. No one had yet redeemed them. And when the book, when the, the last books of our Old Testament end, that's exactly the way Israel is. Yes, in many ways, some of them, for some of them, they had come back from captivity. Their exile had ended, but in many ways, they're still in exile, still waiting for a redeemer. But if there is no redeemer, if this guy that owns this property never gets enough money to buy back his property, or if he doesn't have a relative who's going to buy it back in his place, look at what it says, verse 28, but if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of 
Jubilee, right? Everything goes back, the seventh, seventh year. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So there was this idea that eventually there would be every 49 years, there would be this reset and everything goes back to the families that it belonged to, right? Now, of course, we don't have any record of the Jewish people ever carrying out the year of Jubilee. It didn't end up happening that way. But imagine what that would have done. It would have, it would have made generational poverty almost impossible. You know what I mean by generational poverty? Something happens to one relative and then for generation after generation, they just can't ever seem to get ahead because they're just stuck in this bad cycle. But this way, there was a year of Jubilee and you got back, everything was reset. If you were a slave or a servant, you had fallen on hard times, you even had to sell yourself into slavery, then that ended and your property came back to you and you, your exile ended. And this is exactly what the people of Israel were waiting for. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. When, when Jesus is born and, and, and he's taken to the temple and you have Anna you know, in the temple and you have... Who is the man in the temple? Simeon, right? Simeon and Anna. And they were, they, they, they were excited. Why? Because this one who was born was supposed to be the redeemer, the redemption of Israel. Zechariah, when, when he is prophesying, when Mary is thanking God, they are waiting for, this anticipation is for the end of our exile, the year of Jubilee. Our exile ends. We re-inherit what belongs to us, right? And then Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, comes along and he promises the meek will inherit what? The earth. That's what Jesus says. And so we have to understand this language of inheritance. Now, look over at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 24. Now, the book of Romans is all about how Jesus is not just the redeemer of Israel, but the redeemer of humanity, right? Because it's not just the sons and daughters of Abraham who need a redeemer, it's the sons and daughters of Adam who need a redeemer, right? Israel was just a micro version of what happened on this grand scale. Humanity, too, has been exiled, and humanity needs a son of Adam, a son of man, who will redeem us and give us back our inheritance. Verse 13 of Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the, what? The world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That Abraham would inherit, some translations even say, would inherit that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world. For, verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If, if it's only those who kept the law of Moses who are going to inherit the world, only those who kept the law of Moses who are going to inherit the renewal of all things, as Jesus says. If it's only those who keep the law that are going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth, then who's going to be the, the heirs? Nobody, right? Nobody. Because the Gentiles certainly won't be, right? Because we haven't kept the law of Moses. 
But even, and this is how Paul begins the book of Romans, right? But even the Jewish people who are holding up the law haven't even themselves kept everything in the law, have they? And so if, if that's what the promise stands or falls on, if it's only those of the law who are going to inherit this, this promise, then it's really not going to be anybody. Verse 16, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed, the promise, be guaranteed to all his, what? Offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In what way are we the offspring of Abraham? Well, according to Paul's argument here, it's because we share the same sort of faith that Abraham had, right? When we put our faith in Jesus and we're clothed with Jesus in baptism and we trust him, we trust that God keeps his promises. Remember, we did a whole quarter, probably two quarters, on the keeper of promises. And, and Paul says, by that same faith, that trust and that loyalty, giving your allegiance to God through Jesus, by putting your faith in God through Jesus, you are showing yourself to be like Abraham. And you, through Jesus, you become a part of Abraham's family. Isn't that amazing? You become part of the covenant family of Abraham. And according to the first verse we read, verse 13, what was Abraham and his family promised? The world, right? This, this new world, this, this inheritance belongs to Abraham and his descendants. And for those that are ethnically Abraham's children, Paul would say, listen, but if you don't have faith in Jesus you're not really being Abraham's children. If you don't put your faith in Jesus and you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't confess with your mouth and you're not clothed with him in baptism, then you're rejecting the opportunity to be Abraham's children. And he compares it to an olive tree and the branches are broken off and burned, right? And those of us that are not ethnically Jewish, we are grafted into that olive tree and we become heirs of these promises. It's like, again, I know it was a silly example, my McNicholson family. It's like my Nichols family gets the Mick back. And not only do we get the Mick back, we get all of the inheritance back, right? But, but imagine living in poverty and affliction for generations and generations and generations because you're in exile and the gospel wants us to understand that's exactly the case for all humanity. God created you to be Adam's and Eve's ruling in the garden in perfect peace and harmony and wonderful tranquility and to live forever. That's what he wanted. He wanted you to have access to the tree of life. But you're not only your ancestors, but you yourselves, all of us, we ourselves have squandered that inheritance. And Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, 
has made a way not only for Abraham's family to have that inheritance, but for all of those who put their faith in Jesus to become a part of Abraham's family, that that inheritance might be ours and that we once again might be royalty and have the inheritance that God intends for us to have. That's what the entire scriptures are about. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul's saying, listen, if you're in Jesus, you're a new kind of human being, right? You're a new kind of human being. You don't look like a new kind of human being yet. You still look like the old kind of human being, but it has to show. You have to believe it and embrace it by faith that you're a new kind of human. If then you've been raised with Christ, at what point were you raised with Christ? Right, baptism, right? You're buried with Christ and you're raised with him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. What what kind of things are those? What does he mean by things that are on earth? We'll come back to that. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, Remember, we talked about a similar phrase in Romans chapter 8 last week, right? What does he mean? He keeps saying this. Romans 8, he says it. Colossians 3, he says it. Then you also will appear with him. When Christ appears, you will appear. How am I going to appear? I've already appeared. I'm I'm here, right? But no, no, no. He says, you will appear with him in glory. When Jesus is revealed and every eye sees him, and every knee bows before him, and every tongue confesses him, you also will appear with him in glory. Your true identity as royalty will be revealed, right? I I know it's silly, but I always think about the end of Beauty and the Beast. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I, there's no excuse, but I'm going to spoil it. But at the, end of the, at the end of the movie, right, the beast, the, the curse is reversed, and he's revealed to be the prince that he always was. You, it just was hidden, right? And when the curse is reversed, all of the people who belong to him, all of his children his sons and his daughters will appear with him in glory. Our glory will be revealed. Or as he says in Romans chapter 8, that glory will be revealed for us, unto us, toward us. Put to death, therefore. Now, now here's where I want to get really practical. Because a lot of times, again, as we said last week, a lot of times people say, Wes, what difference does all of this make? You're just you know, talking about glory and new heavens, new earth, and I mean, you know, redemption of creation, and and what difference does all that make, and who knows, and that just sounds weird, I don't understand. What difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, if we don't understand this, it will corrupt our morals. Paul says, because these things are true, put to death what is earthly in you. Here's what he means when he says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Here's the things that are earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't it? 
Covetousness? Imagine, imagine that. You are royalty. You, you were intended to be an Adam or an Eve. You were intended to have this great inheritance and this great name and this great responsibility to be a co-heir with the Messiah Jesus. That is your destiny. But yet, but yet, we're going to set a car up on a pedestal or a house on a pedestal or some electronic device on a pedestal or some whatever it is that somebody else has and we say, oh, that's so awesome, and if I only had that, or I'm going to throw away these things so that I can have that thing, it's idolatry, isn't it? But when we set our minds on things above, it puts everything into its proper, into its proper perspective. On account of these, things like sexual morality and impurity and passion, evil desire and covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away. Then he gives us another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The newness has already begun in you. And if we forget this big picture, I am Naomi, I am Ruth, I was cut off and exiled and disinherited and my inheritance was gone and I was hopeless and I was miserable and my kinsman redeemer stepped in. And he has lifted me up from the pit. He has changed everything. And now my future is bright because of what he's done. It's the year of Jubilee, or at least the year of Jubilee is coming. It's upon us. And that newness has to be embraced and believed and lived out in us. And Paul says part of living out that newness is putting off the oldness, that old lifestyle. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, lying, all of these things. Verse 11, here in this new humanity, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, that's who you are. It hasn't yet appeared. Who you are hasn't yet appeared. It hasn't yet been revealed. You may still live like and feel like and be literally a slave. You might be a prisoner. You might be poor, you might be afflicted, but by faith you can embrace, no, 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 I'm blessed. I've got the life. I've got the life. Why? Because I am God's chosen ones. I'm a part of God's chosen ones. I'm holy and I'm beloved. And because you are these things, put on compassionate hearts. Listen to these phrases. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility, here's our word, meekness, 
and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Does all of that encompass everything we've been talking about in this series? Why live this way? Because you are heirs of the world. Because you've been given a gift. Because by the grace of God, you've been grafted into Abraham's family tree. And now his inheritance is your inheritance. His promises are your promises. This renewal that is coming is yours. It's yours. So embrace it and live in it and walk in it. What does that look like? Put off this other way of living. This momentary gratification of these desires, just living for the minute and living for the moment and doing what feels good right then. Stop and embrace this life of putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Verse 14, and above all these, put on what? Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in which indeed you were called to be one body and be thankful. This is what church looks like. This is what Christianity looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. A group of people that on the surface, we still look like exiles we still look like the anav, like the persecuted, like the suffering, like the poor, but we're willing to, and we smile in spite of it, and we embrace the blessedness of it because we know that even though they slap on the cheek, and even though they force us to go a mile, we're going to go too, and we're going to love them, and when they're hungry, we're going to feed them, and when they're thirsty, we're going to give them something to drink. Why? Because this is who we are. We're part of a brand new humanity. And hopefully, hopefully we can take as many of them with us as we go, right? And invite them into this totally different way of being human. Because we're marching towards something brand new, something radically different. Let the word of Christ, verse 16, the message of the Christ, the message of the Messiah, the story of who Jesus is and what we have in him, all of these truths, the gospel, dwell in you richly by what? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word, what you say, or indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you do. When you talk to someone on the street, when you talk to your family members, when you talk to your neighbors, when you do something at work, when you do something for your neighbor, whether you're talking or you're doing, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he gives some examples and he walks through sort of the household and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, what? Inheritance as your reward. Now, I can't imagine being a bondservant, whether that's somebody that's an indentured servant for a period of time or someone who has to spend a lifetime in slavery. I can't even imagine that. But Paul is saying to them, isn't he, as well as to the wife and to the husband and to the child and to the parent, this situation as it exists today is going to be short-lived. Here's what you do in your situation. Whatever situation you find yourself, walk in this new humanity. Live like this kind of person. Do these kinds of things. Why? Because from the Lord, you are going to receive an inheritance as your reward. Your reward? Yes, your reward for doing what? For being meek and for walking by faith, for trusting him, for being a part of the calling to which we've been called. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So let me sort of walk through a few things, and we're going to look at a couple more verses, but I want to walk through these just kind of to summarize where we are so far. Here's what we're expecting. One, when the Messiah is revealed from heaven, the true royal identity of God's people will also be revealed. That's what he said in Colossians 3. That's what he says in Romans chapter 8. When the Messiah is revealed, then our true royal identity will be revealed. Two, because the Messiah is our Redeemer, and because we share the faith of Abraham, because of what Jesus has done, and because he's grafted us into Abraham's family, we will receive the inheritance promised to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. Romans chapter 4. Number three, but those who walk by the flesh and reject their opportunity to be part of the Messiah's family, will have no inheritance in, we'll use Jesus' words, the renewal. You, right now, are making a choice. I, right now, am making a choice. All of humanity, right now, is making a choice. Do you want to be a part of this or not? Do you want this inheritance or not? If you want this inheritance, here's what you do. Here's the sort of lifestyle that you lead. You die to yourself. You're buried with Jesus in baptism. You're raised up to walk as this new kind of humanity. If this is the type of inheritance you want, this is the type of life you live. Now listen to a couple other passages as we think through that that phrase. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not, what's the word? Inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Do you notice how that makes the list every single time? Because he knows what we struggle with. Doesn't he? God knows what we struggle with. 
But in order to combat these struggles, we have these promises. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Here's our word. It's translated this way in this translation, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then finally, Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. He says, strive for peace with who? Everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Remember Esau? Who sold his birthright, his inheritance... For a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is serious stuff, isn't it? Jesus is offering humanity an opportunity to share his inheritance. The things that only he deserves, he's offering to share with everything by his sacrifice, by his love, by the promises of God. And it's our opportunity to decide whether or not we will receive those promises, that inheritance, or squander it. So here's our final thought. Walk by the Spirit and by faith in Jesus so that you do not lose the inheritance Jesus died to share with you. That's the warning of the gospel, isn't it? All of humanity is being offered, and it's our job to help offer it to humanity, to be grafted into the family tree of Abraham so that they can receive the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. But we reject it either outright and say, I want no part of that, or we give lip service to it and say, yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but then we actually end up rejecting it by walking by the flesh. Let's pray, church. Father, we pray that you help us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Help us to walk by faith in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to embrace and look for and wait for and anticipate the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for these promises and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.